Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Pankaj Jain, a host on the New Books Network. And today we'll be talking to Professor Jeffrey Long about his 2009 book, Jainism and Introduction, originally published by IB Taurus and now being marketed by Bloomsbury Press. Hello, Jeff Weiss, Professor Jeffrey Long, my longtime colleague and friend. We met, I think, almost 20 years back in, at a conference yeah. in Florida. Are we, and now here we are after almost two decades and we are together and still on the same journey, uh, although yes. physically apart, but on the same journey. Uh, how are you? Namaste. Doing very well. Uh, it's wonderful to be here today. Thank you for inviting me to uh, have this conversation. Thank you. And congratulations on your new home uh, in Pennsylvania. And, Thank uh, you. <laughs> and uh, we have a you know, great background picture of Ramakrishna Paramhans also, yeah, as always. Uh, mm-hmm. But today we are going to specifically discuss about your Jainism book. Uh, I think of one of first of its kind that came by a Western scholar, scholar living in America on Jainism, right? Uh, so, which introduced Jainism to general public, undergraduate students, or even graduate students. So I guess first of all, so so this is the book that came in 2009 called Jainism and Introduction by. Uh, what was the publisher again? Sorry, uh, the name of IB Taurus. IB Taurus. Uh, I think it's now being distributed by Bloomsbury. Oh, Bloomsbury also. All right, great. So, uh, to begin with, I guess uh, I would like to ask. I think most of the scholars in America or even in Europe, I think they are mostly interested more in Hinduism and Buddhism. Jainism is relatively less known entity, even in India and and also in the West. So, how did you? Yes get this idea to get into Jainism, why Jainism, and why this book? Well, that's a wonderful question. And uh, as you said, uh, like, uh, like many scholars, uh, my interests also were primarily in Hinduism and Buddhism. Uh, I became interested especially in Hindu traditions from an early age. Uh, I am now part of the, the tradition of Sri Ramakrishna. That's why his picture is here. Yes. Uh, part of uh, what in America we call the Vedanta Society. In India, they call it Ramakrishna Mission. And, uh, and my advisor uh, in uh, graduate school, Paul J. Griffiths, was a scholar of Buddhism. So I did a lot of coursework in Buddhism. So how I got interested in Jainism, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting story. It's a little bit roundabout. Uh, but uh, one idea that has been very interesting to me and very central to my work all through from the beginning, um, my work on Hinduism as well as, as in Jainism, is the idea of what uh, in the Vedanta tradition they called Dharma Samanvaya or harmony of religions. Yeah. Uh, the idea that there's not just one true religion. See, I grew up in, in Missouri, a fairly conservatively Christian area. And there were a lot of people who believed you had to be Christian. If you weren't Christian, you were, you were going to hell, you were damned forever. In fact, not just Christian, you had to be the right kind of Christian. I grew up Catholic and that was not the right kind of for, for many of these people. So, so you're going to hell. And this whole idea that uh, a benevolent God would create billions and billions of life forms and send all of them to hell, except the handful that were part of this one church, never made sense to me. I just thought that was, that was not only did it not make sense, but I thought it was a destructive idea. You know, it's been used to justify imperialism and colonialism and all, you know, very, very problematic and all of the things that have flown out, you know, flown from, from that. So when I started getting interested in Indian religions, um, 
my first point of entry actually was Mahatma Gandhi. And I remember being really struck by a quote of his where he said, uh, religions are many paths to the same goal. It doesn't matter what path you take so long as you reach the goal. And I thought that made much more sense. I, I, I found that, that really drew me. But as I explored this idea more deeply and getting into graduate school and so on, I found there were many philosophers who were trying to articulate this idea, but it's difficult sometimes to persuade people philosophically about mm. this. Like on a sort of heart level, people say, oh yeah, that's great. Let everyone be included. Everyone should be, you know, uh, all paths should be respected and, and so on. The religions aren't all the same. They teach very different things, mm. right? Christianity says there is a creator God. Jainism says no creator God, right? Mm. Buddhism says creator God. So how do we make sense of saying there are many paths and yet they are somehow fitting together into this larger harmony. And so as I studied Indian philosophy in Chicago, as I was at University of Chicago, hmm. and I began really delving deeply. I mean, I, most of my reading had been, you know, sort of more popular books, you know, autobiography of a yogi and, you know, that sort of thing. So uh, this was really, I'm getting into hardcore philosophy. And I read a book by the late Bimal Krishna Motilal uh, hmm. called Language and Reality. Hmm. And it's very depth talks about Nyaya philosophy. And he has a wonderful section on Jainism. And he talked about this idea of anekantavada, that reality is multifaceted and syadvada, that that mm. have to analyze a truth claim in terms of the perspective from which it's made. And there, all truth claims can have some truth and some falsehood. And in that way, you could kind of create a harmonizing view, which is what a lot of the Jain philosophers do. They, they pull together, you know, Buddhism teaches impermanence, Vedanta teaches one unchanging reality. How do you bring them together? Well, there are ways of, of sort of showing logically that, you know, if you're talking about the phenomenal level of reality, it's very much like Buddhism describes. If you're talking about ultimate reality, you know, you get into a more Vedantic direction. So Jain philosophy had this very nice integrating pluralistic philosophy. So I made that the topic of my dissertation. And uh, I found another wonderful book by Maltilal that's just specifically on this. It's called, so it's a thin little book, but it's very profound. It's called Anekantavada, the Central Philosophy of Jainism. I found it when I was in India, in fact. I, I was living in India and uh, for two years, and I found that book. I said, this is, this is what I want to do. So I wrote my dissertation on that. And uh, in my first book, which is really sort of developing from, from kind of a Hindu perspective of this pluralistic philosophy, there is a chapter where I drew a lot from Jain thought, right? What I'd been studying in my mm -hmm. dissertation. And so my uh, editor at uh, IB Taurus at the time, uh, Alex Wright, I, I think he works for Cambridge now. Uh, he said, uh, you know, you're, you also study Jain philosophy. There's not really a, mm. an that easily accessible of a book on Jainism for say undergraduates. Why don't you write one? Mm. And first I was really uh, daunted by that because I'd been studying the philosophy, hmm. not much anthropology, right? I, I wasn't, uh, you know, when I was in India, I wasn't, you know, sort of going and spending time with, you know, Jain Munis or hmm. much time. Since then, I've spent a lot of time with the Jain community and I feel very comfortable uh, in the Jain community, but hmm. I knew very little about practice. Or, so I had to do a lot of research uh, to, hmm. to write a book. Uh, but I accepted because I, I thought it was important for people to understand the tradition. There was a wonderful book, um, The China Path of Purification by uh, Padmanabh Jaini, who Padmanabh just recently passed away. Yes. yes. Very huge loss. You know, I mean, uh, yes. I, I tell people he was in his 90s, but he went too soon <laughs> because he's <laughs> such a wonderful yes. uh, 
and uh, really, I, I was, and I met him a couple of times. I was very mm -hmm. honored to know. But his book was the only one available for many, many years who wanted to learn about Jainism. And uh, it's a fantastic book. Hmm. At the same time, the scholarship is always developing. Mm -hmm. So by the time my book came out, his was about 30 years old, right? Oh, so, right. Uh, you know, it was time for another, for another oh, book. Right. And so I, uh, I published mine. But that, that's the hmm. story, right? Hmm. My entry point to the study of Jainism was Anikantavad, Syadvad. And then that led to getting more engaged with the whole tradition and really, mm -hmm. under, and I'm so glad that I did because it, it is so much to offer. And as you say, it's understudied, but I think it's mm -hmm. every bit as important as the, as uh, two other main Dharma traditions, right? Hindu and Buddhist, uh, Jain, the Jain traditions are very important part of. of mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Great. Uh, so yeah, that gives me good entry point to into deeper into your book. So, how do you think your book charts a path that is sort of that is different from what Professor Padmanabh Jaini did in his book, in his path-breaking book called the Jaina Path right. of Purification, and the other book that other major book that we didn't mention so far, the Jains by Professor Paul Dundas in the UK. Yes. Uh, yes. So how did you chart out your path, which is sort of maybe complementary to these two major books that came before? That's right, and then you have these two excellent books, and of course the first yes. thing you asked is why do we need another book right it is Jenny's book Paul Dundas wrote this wonderful book called the Jains um, but again I think part of the answer in fact even if you look at Paul Dundas book of uh, the Jains it, it kind of gives you part of the answer to the question he hmm. himself wrote the second edition of that book hmm. uh, first published I think in 1992 and then he did another one in 2002 just because our knowledge keeps developing especially in the field of Jain studies because hmm. There are even many Jain texts that mm -hmm. have not been translated into Western languages, or the last time they were was over 100 years ago. Mm. The English itself has changed. So you read those old translations, and the English itself is incomprehensible sometimes. You know, it's like, well, this isn't how we talk anymore. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and the other thing that I found was, and again, I, I think Professor Jaini and Professor uh, Dundas' books are fantastic. I, I recommend mm. them highly yes. all the time. Yes. I will say that for what I have found with, with my undergraduate students, I teach mainly undergrads, mm -hmm. and uh, they're extremely bright, they're extremely curious, but they have no background. Mm -hmm. And both Professor Jainese, Professor Jainese's book, I think anyone can pick that up and, and get a good understanding of Jainism, but it helps if you already know some Indian yes. philosophy. Right. A lot of terminology, yes. a lot of things that'll be unfamiliar to someone who's new to it. Right. That's probably my book as well, but I, I, I tried to make it as clear as mm -hmm. principle to someone who had no background. Yes. And Professor Dundas' book is, is also very, very clear, but it's massive. I mean, he's he talked about everything, the whole history of, of Jainism, philosophy, and practice. So it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, it could be daunting, I think, to an undergraduate or to someone who's just saying, oh, what's Jainism? Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I, would, I would feel comfortable assigning, and I do assign their books in upper-level undergraduate courses where they've already mm -hmm. done a course or graduate school. Mm -hmm. But I want yeah. to write something someone who knew nothing mm -hmm. could pick up and yes. get an idea. Yes. Yes. So yes. I, definitely, was, yeah. I would completely agree with that. I've read all three books, of course, <laughs> maybe more than one times. And yes. uh, yours is really like, uh, you know, good, uh, you know, tantalizing appetizer. <laughs> You, you know, you wet your feet and then you dive into the major books by Professor Jenny and Professor Dundas and then 
then you get overwhelmed with so much information from so much so many technical terms in professor jenny's book especially and technical details historical details archaeological details in professor dandas book so those three all three of the books i think are comp great complement to each other i think so that's, that's well that's really kind of, if it's in the, if it's in that company then i'm i'm extremely okay. grateful because, yes uh, of course because uh, uh, i i was like i said i was nervous about it it, it had not mm. The part I had really studied for years was the philosophy. Okay. So you know, I was venturing into, for me, fairly new territory uh, with okay. some of the chapters, but, okay. but I learned so much. I mean, that's the wonderful thing about writing and teaching. We're, we're learning new things all the yes, time. Yes, yes, yes. Right. And so let's, uh, I guess, uh, let's take a look chapter by chapter, right? Okay. So, uh, so in the introduction, uh, how would you, I mean, how have you introduced Jainism or how would you maybe, you know, if you, if you were to go for a second edition of your book, how would you introduce Jainism? Or what's the best way to, for a beginner to, you know, how we make it relevant for a, for a, for a student who is in America or in UK or in Europe? You know, how do we make, it, make him or her relevant, Jainism relevant for these students? And, and how have you Very done good. from your book? Yeah. I, and I'm, thank you for the opportunity to talk about that. And I'll just quickly say, if, if my publisher is listening, uh, I would love the opportunity to do a second edition okay. because learned much more about Jainism since I wrote that book uh -huh. than I knew it. So it's, you know, it's been 12 years uh -huh. and, uh, and I've had a lot more interaction with the community uh, and so on. Uh, but in, in the current book, um, what I do at the beginning, I, I really talk about what I'm intending to do with the book mm -hmm. and the, is to reach people who really don't know anything about the tradition. And I have some reflections in there just drawn from my experience of teaching college students in the U S that, uh, I, they found the Jain tradition was the most difficult one for them to mm. relate to in many ways, mm. because the yeah. uh, Jain tradition takes certain core ideas that you find in all the Dharma traditions, like mm. karma, for example, and it takes them to their, I guess you could say their logical end, or if you were being critical, you could say to their extreme. Mm. I suppose the dramatic case would be the Salekana or Santara mm. practice. Yes. Very few Jains actually do, but they're, they're mm. the idea that slowly not, you know, in, ingesting food and, and starving mm. to death, giving up the body, that this could be a, a, the noblest and the highest and most spiritual thing you could do. Mm. From students, mostly from a Christian background, they just they have a hard time wrapping their heads around that. Mm. Right, right, right. And, uh, you know, but of course, their tradition is based on the idea that Jesus gave his life for people. So, why not give our life for all life forms, right? right, right, right. The insects, the microbes, and so on. And uh, what I find some of the students, in fact, they, they, they came away admiring the tradition greatly, but mm -hmm. not relating to it. They could see themselves you know, maybe being Hindu, right? They, they, could, they could identify, they enjoyed the, the imagery of the deities and mm -hmm. festivals. Mm -hmm. and they could see themselves easily being Buddhist. You know, they like meditation mm -hmm. and uh, being Jane, there's like, no, it's, it's too hard, right? This too was hard. Ridiculous. I, I wanted to, to present it in a way that could address and overcome some of that, mm. uh, what, what I might call resistance uh, on mm. the part of the mm. students. Mm. And I wanted to be sure it wasn't something in the way I was presenting it that, that was causing the problem. And so um, what I did in the books, I tried to emphasize I thought uh, maybe a little more than I saw, for example, in Professor Jani's book, that experience of everyday Jain householders, lay people mm. who are not monks, right? Mm. They're not putting the ground in front of them, and as they were, they're not wearing the mupati all of the time. They're mm -hmm. they're not 
know, doing Santara. They, they, they are uh, living the lives of really very similar to what, say, Vaishnav Hindus uh, in right. Gujarat would name diet and everything. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and even the cover of the book, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, a conventional way of doing a book on Jainism, you have a picture of a monk or of a picture mm-hmm. of a murti one of the jinnas and everything's very serene you, know, you think of mount abu right yeah. white marble everything is serene so i have this crazy picture of people at the uh, abhisheka of bahubali getting just soaked with <laughs> this, uh, sindhur and, and yes. milk and water and it's all yes. just kind of raining down on them and they're they're celebrating and they're happy yeah. as this very joyful thing so i wanted to say you know the jain tradition is as joyful and life-affirming Rich exuberance, exuberance. Yeah. It's, it's it's joyful. It's bhakti going on, and and um, so that they don't come away. The readers don't come away with the idea that it's only austerity mm. and fasting. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you you get these very exaggerated uh, books. That well, okay. There was a book over a century ago by a woman named Margaret Stevenson, hmm. and Paul just mentions it. Book, yeah, it's called The Heart of Jainism, and okay. as Paul Dunn. As its basic thesis is that Jainism has no heart. <laughs> it's, you know, fasting. <laughs> and uh, you know, that's, that's so wrong, right? That's contrary. Uh, yeah. At any time in the community, it's the opposite of what you find. Mm-hmm. And so I want a sense of the, the joy. Of, I could have called the book The Joy of Jainism. Maybe I'll, maybe this <laughs> call that. Uh, it's, because, because, you know, you're trying to, the, the, it, Jain, the Jain teaching, and you see this in Vedanta too, right? It, the soul, the jiva is pure, pure bliss, right? Hmm. Satyadatta in the Vedanta tradition, they say, uh, ananta sukha, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Infinite bliss uh, yeah. is, is the of the soul in, in right. Jainism. Satyadatta, so yes, yes. Exactly. It's not gloomy and, and right, right, right. pessimistic. So, uh, yeah. So, I guess uh, on Salekhana or Santara, how have they responded? I mean, how did you, if you take a you know, more specific example of that, how exactly have you, you know, tried to overcome their resistance and how do you explain that? Why Samhara or why Salekna? Yeah, I finally found a story that actually was very helpful in that regard. Okay. Uh, it's the story of the, the great uh, Digambar uh, sage Samantabhadra uh-huh. and the author of a very important text, the Aptamimansa, um, right. and uh, really a major thinker in developing Syadvada. But that, that's mm-hmm. how I knew him originally. But he also undertook Salekna. Mm-hmm. And there's a story about him. I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but according to the story, uh, well, an important thing about Salekna, this sort of self-starvation, you have to do it with the permission of your guru. Mm-hmm. You don't just kind of decide, right? Mm-hmm. There's a book on this called Salekna is Not Suicide, and it explains, you know, this isn't something you do out of despair or despondency. Mm-hmm. It's this very joyful, detached setting aside mm-hmm. of the body. So according to the story, Samantabhadra contracted leprosy. Mm-hmm. So he had this terrible disease. Mm-hmm. So he decided to undertake Salekana. So he asked his guru and his guru said, no, mm-hmm. uh, you're attached to your body. You're, you're, you want to do this because you want to become free from the pain of the body. So, but you know, if the pain comes from your karma. And if mm-hmm. you do that, you're going to be born in another body and you're going to keep having the same pain. Mm-hmm. So he go spend some time, spend a year, according to the version that I read, he spend a year meditating mm-hmm. and reflecting. And, and so he did. And he came back and his master, his guru said, so do you still want to, to undertake Salekna? Hmm. And according to the story, Samantabhadra says, well, I've been meditating a lot and I realize, you know, that this jiva, the soul is not the body. 
Mm. The body's like, you know, you put it on, it comes and goes. He said, I leave it up to you. Mm. I am attached. I'm unconcerned whether I do so like or not, it's in your hands. Mm. And then his mother says, now you're ready mm. to do something. Mm. <laughs> You can feel attachment and you can have detached your soul from your body. Now you're ready. All right. Okay. Comes from this very serene place. And when the students that story, they they still it it still I think is probably very alien to them, but Mm. makes more sense Mm. than just, you know, oh you starve yourself and Mm. is yeah, they they they're they're getting really more a richer understanding. It is definitely not suicide. Yeah. So at least that much will be clear that it's not suicide. Like suicide's really uh, regarded uh, as a very, it's very you know pop karma. Right? It's a very bad karma. It's a very bad thing to do mm-hmm. in, in all the Dharma traditions. That there's this very serene letting go of the body, mm-hmm. and there's a tradition of doing that in, in all the traditions. And of course, there's the famous story of the Buddhist monks in Vietnam who mm-hmm. immolated themselves while mm-hmm. they were in meditation. But they weren't feeling any pain. They were in very serene state, but they did this out of compassion to, mm-hmm. to draw attention to the world to what was happening in their country. Mm-hmm. And that is not suicide in the convention. If suicide means taking one's own life because of some very deep emotional turmoil, right. that's defeatist story, yeah, right? So it's not suicide, have, it's also not euthanasia, right? From from the right. example that you shared, yes, yeah. The other yeah, and question, this is, yeah. Go ahead, please. Right. Yeah. So other question I have faced when I have t- tried teaching Jainism to students in Texas, how do you or, or uh, you know how do you relate uh, the condition of uh, asceticism and the fact that certain uh, uh, eligibilities are required before you can achieve moksha? How have you dealt with in your teaching or in, in your book? You know the, uh, for example, you know monks and nuns issues or gender right. issues. Would you like to share a little bit more on that? Right. I've, I've talked about those in a very frank way. The, uh, the Shvetambra and Digambar traditions have different views right. about this. Right. Right. And uh, another great book by, by Padmanabh Jaini is yes. Gender and Self. Yes. And he talks about the fact that the, according to the Digambar interpretation of Jainism, that, uh, um, the well, okay, the, there are five core practices that are required of everyone for moksha. Right. And one of them so non-attachment, non-ownership. Mm-hmm. And the Dikambas take that very literally to mean that even clothing, mm-hmm. right? Something so basic as clothing, uh, the fact that we wear clothing is a sign of our attachment to the body. Mm-hmm. And even that has to go. So mm-hmm. Dikambar means blood, and the, the main aesthetics don't wear anything. Never. And they say that's a prerequisite for mm-hmm. now, women cannot undertake that practice mm-hmm. according to Dik- it's it, it's believed that you know, it would cause a scandal in society, and there there would be you know all kinds of bad things that is believed that that could come from that. Right. So the implication is that in, in the Digumber interpretation, you have to be reborn. Mm-hmm. Several things: reborn as a male, mm-hmm. then uh, be become a Jane, become a Digumber Jane, mm-hmm. become a Digumber Jane ascetic, and practice this. Aparigraha, yes. and only then can you get moksha. And uh, I mean, the students' reaction to that, and I, I think many of us kind of instinctively think, well, that's not fair, right? I mean, you know, that you know, we 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 know women who are very spiritually evolved. There were great women teachers, mm-hmm. including in the Digamba tradition of Jainism. Right? There's mm-hmm. this wonderful teacher. I think you and I have both met. Uh, 
one of the most inspirational people I've ever met mm -hmm. but according to her own tradition she's going to have to be reborn um, as a male in order to, to get liberation mm -hmm. and of course the Shvetambar interpretation says well you know it's it's the attitude of Aparigraha that matters uh, you know th this kind of becoming overly preoccupied with things like clothing is itself a type of attachment you know, there are fierce debates between the yes. two about this in fact they, they even say the 19th Tertankar Malinat is, is female yes. Yes. And, uh, in, that's right and the Shvetambras also say that uh, uh, Queen Trishala that is the mother of Mahavira attained moksha right mm. so uh, that's in the that's in the Agamas which the Degambras don't accept <laughs> they don't accept yeah. So there, there, there's this debate. Um, I, I would say there's a very delicate balance as a teacher that you want to, to when you're presenting this material. On the one hand, everyone's, of course, free to have their own opinion. Hmm. And I certainly, I mean, my own sympathies are, I think, much more on the Shreytambar side hmm. in this issue. Hmm. But that makes me even more careful to try to present the Degumber view in as, as sympathetic hmm. a light as possible. Hmm. And there's something important to note mm -hmm. it's not the case that well now you're a woman you can't be liberated but maybe in your next life you'll be a male and you according to jane teaching we have already passed the period of cosmic mm -hmm. history anybody in this world can get liberation mm -hmm. so we're all gonna have to get reborn exactly so in some future you know yuga right. you know Maybe, you know, we all get reborn as male Degumbers and, you know, uh, yeah. do the practice. But uh, as it's, of now, we're it, all ineligible. <laughs> we're all ineligible. We're so all, yes, yes. In, in that sense, then it's not as restrictive as it looks, because Sorry. it's not that the Degumbers are all getting moksha. You know, the Degumber males are just like all getting moksha right and left. You know, it hasn't happened in thousands of years, according yes, to yes, yes, yes. Uh, much like Terafada Buddha. There, there hasn't been an art for thousands of years, according to, mm -hmm. to the Theravada teaching. So um, mm -hmm. it, I, I, I always try to give that side so yeah, that right. people don't leave class. Thinking, well, the Gumber Janes are sexist. I mean, that's, that's, that's the temptation, and you don't want right. them to play with that. Yeah, 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 yeah. right. And other, uh, I guess, let's go to the next point. Next uh, question I probably ask is, uh, you know, sometimes I, I used to face this question that, does Jens uh, are discouraged from doing charity? Is it okay to help do a you know charity in a traditional sense? Is it okay to do from Jen perspective or not? Would you like mm -hmm. to you know share a little bit more how you have dealt that issue in your book and with your students? Yeah. because the question comes up because you know all of our sufferings are due to our karma, right. and. What and I, I've actually had to do a lot of research myself to kind of fully understand the Jane view on this mm -hmm. because there's a lot of Jane charity that goes on. Right? The yeah. early animal hospitals in the world, the Pandrabals, were made by the Janes. Right. So clearly, there's a view that you can do good for others. Right. What I find is sort of the limit of that in mm -hmm. Jainism is you, you used this word earlier when we were talking about, say, like in a euthanasia. Yeah. That is a line that cannot be crossed. That uh, if if an animal or a human being is suffering a lot physically, right. it is not an acceptable expression of compassion to end their life. Right. And the reason for this is actually very logical if you think about about Jainism, because yeah. uh, we are all suffering because of our karma. 
Right. Now, if you end someone's life thinking I'm ending their suffering, well, you don't know that their pop karma, their bad karma has been exhausted. Right. They're probably going to get reborn and suffer again. Yeah. Now, if someone says, well, then why, why is it okay to give medicine? Why is it okay mm. to give a glass of water? Right. Why is it okay to do other kinds? Uh, well, you're not ending their life, right? You're not, you're not taking away their opportunity. And in fact, within their lifetime, you could say that the fact that they have met you mm. is also part of karma, right? So uh, they, they have, there's bad karma, but there's also good karma. There's punya karma. So they've met you. You can do a good deed and, you know, you feed animals, care for human beings who are, who are sick and poor. And, but ending the life of a living being is, uh, for any reason, isn't acceptable. Right. Exactly. I, I sometimes use this expression. I said, if, if Jains believed in a creator God, they would say you're playing God, right? Ah. By taking. <laughs> right, right. That's not a Jain view. So, <laughs> but, but, so I did once hear a Jain use that expression, and they're playing God. You know, it's ah. like uh, the you idea that. Of, uh, yeah, you reminded me of uh, of a famous controversy that Mahatma Gandhi had with traditional Jains in Ahmedabad, right? You, maybe you also know that, right? That a cow was suffering, and Gandhi wanted to kill that cow euthanasia for that cow. And Jain said, no, you cannot yes. play God. Let the cow fulfill its own, you know, karma path. Let it fulfill, let it suffer whatever suffering, because we, we don't want to force that cow to, for another birth, to get rid of the, his or her pap, you know, past pap karma or whatever. So even Gandhi That's was, right. you know, Jains disagreed, even, disagreed even with Gandhi. That was yes. reported in newspapers. Yeah. There's a wonderful film on uh, Jainism. Uh, it, in fact, it's about Ahmedabad and right. focuses on the. It's called the Frontiers of Peace. Yeah, Jainism, and I've cited it in my book, and and I use it in my classes all the time. And they talk about that incident, and yes. this shocks the because a couple of weeks before they've uh -huh. watched scenes from the movie Gandhi, and they've <laughs> learned about Gandhi, and so you know, Gandhi nonviolence, and they realize even. <laughs> Point of view, even Gandhi wasn't quite. Even Gandhi was not quite nonviolent for from that perspective. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Oh, that that is giving me another question to continue our conversation. So, what about the intellectual violence or intellectual nonviolence? Professor Court wrote a, a very interesting paper: intellectual nonviolence that can be correlated with Syadwad. And then yes. you dealt with the, your book, I think, the you know, final chapter that uh, gens are pretty close to intellectual nonviolence based on Syadwad and Anikanwad. What is your view now, now that it has been more than a decade that you wrote your book and maybe you can... Right, right. Well, and in fact, one of the things that attracted me to studying Syadvad was precisely because that looks like intellectual hinsa, right? If you interpret it a certain... What John Court argued, and Paul Dundas makes this point as well, mm -hmm. and then Professor Jaini made it to me in person when I met him once. By the way, I want you to really understand <laughs> uh, that... Uh, Traditionally, many Jain philosophers mm -hmm. actually use Advaita to show that, look, the Jain view is all-encompassing. These other views are partial, mm -hmm. right? So it's really very much like a glass, half water, a glass of water, half full or half empty argument. Like, if you want to look at it positively, you could say, look, the Jain philosophy is saying that there's truth in all traditions. Mm -hmm. But then you can switch it and say, yeah, but the Jain philosophy is also saying that all traditions have only part of the truth. Whereas <laughs> you, 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 can, you can encompass many perspectives. Mm -hmm. And uh, the way I approach that in my book, and it's still mm -hmm. pretty close to what I, what I say today, is that mm -hmm. from a historical perspective, Professor Court is absolutely right. I mean, mm -hmm. if you look at the text, that's what they say. Though there are a couple of interesting exceptions. Uh, Hari Badrasuri, 
mm-hmm. uh, very important thinker, uh, thinker uh, Dr. Chapel, Chris Chapel has done a really mm-hmm. good translation of his mm-hmm. Yoga Drishti Samuchaya, where you know his per- collection of views on yoga, mm-hmm. and he's he's really affirming what he sees as positive in all of these perspectives. There's mm-hmm. a couple of critical things to say about Tantra, but otherwise, Haribhadra is very, you know, all-encompassing in his right. view. Yes. And then uh, uh, more recently, uh, just a few centuries ago, uh, Yashovijaya also oh, uh, also very open, very well respecting to everybody. Uh, right, all are true, all are good. Yes, all are good. He quotes from the Gita, you know, and things like that. He's he's quite happy to to bring in things from. He studied Navyanyaya in, in Banaras and is is open to many philosophies. Right. The predominant thread has been, yeah, you know, oh, the Buddhists have peace of the truth, and Sankhya has peace. Truth and you know Nyaya has piece of the truth, but the Jain Darshan has the whole truth. <laughs> so they're right about that historically. But the thing is about Anikantavada Syadva, these are philosophical concepts. Mm-hmm. So if you've understood the concept, you can apply it mm-hmm. in any way you, you wish, as long as you can defend and show that it's mm-hmm. consistent and, and logical. And, and uh, also there there's a and, and I and I I a long-term project I have is to go into this in more depth. Mm-hmm. Going back to the Dhamma tradition, you know, we were giving the Degumbers maybe a hard time earlier about the women's issue, but mm-hmm. uh, the really great Degumber Acharya or teacher, mm-hmm. uh, has his own model of the doctrine of perspectives. Mm-hmm. And he talks about uh, the Nishayanaya, that is the, mm-hmm. the ultimate highest or final perspective. Mm-hmm. And for him, that's, that's not actually Jainism. It's something beyond words, beyond concepts that one has to experience. It's the nature of the soul itself. He goes, it's the nature of the soul. The essence of the soul is the ultimate perspective. Hmm. And so anything that you put into words is going to be in the relative. He uses the term, this is the Jain version of the two, two, two truths doctrine that hmm might know is also used by Shankaracharya and by Nagarjuna. Um, maybe the Jains came upon it first, though mm. that's debatable. That's all these things about <laughs> is debatable. Um, but th- there's a Jain version of it. Mm. And I think this perspective definitely creates a space for what we today call pluralism. Mm. So there's an old truth that's beyond words, mm. but when we're in the realm of thoughts and ideas, you know, we can connect them in, the, in this way, you know, using sadhva and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and a, and a, a nice thing about this whole line of questioning is it shows there is diversity in the Jain tradition, mm. too. Oh, yes. yes. Mm-hmm. And not every thinker is saying exactly the same thing. Right, right. So I guess so. Can we say that uh, Jain, even with this diversity of views, Jain philosophy in general is tending more towards intellectual nonviolence? Uh, a bit more than I mean. Today, that seems to be the dominant view. I mean, when when I speak with people in the Jain community, I mean that that's the understanding, mm-hmm. right? And three, I, I call them the three A's, right? Mm-hmm. Ahinsa, Anikantavad, and Aparigraha that right. constitute a kind of holistic approach to life mm-hmm. that is rooted in not harming others and not you know, more than than we need, and in respecting. The views of others, not engaging controversy, right. right. and yeah. so on. So I think that the intellectual hinsa idea has become uh, the, the dominant view in the Jain, yeah. especially as, as the diaspora Jains, Jains living in in Americas or in Europe, they are really promoting that intellectual nonviolence is the frontal phrase of Jainism 
global it is what they like to project at least here i think it is we can say that and um, but even in india you know like the the recently passed away um, acharya mahapragya uh, oh, yeah. his writing on sadhvada really influenced my thinking a lot when i was writing my oh. dissertation oh, and okay. he he yeah, think right. he taught that uh, as well but yes this is kind of like you say the public face of, of oh, the right, jain community right, right. Hey. now right. on the and you know sort of more critical scholars would point out that You'll also have Jains who say Jainism is the highest religion. It's the universal religion. It's the supreme religion. Like everyone says that yeah, about like, their religion. We are the best. We are the best. Everybody says that. Whatever we are, we're the best. And, uh, but I don't see the kind of uh, like aggressive proselytizing. Oh, or, yes. You know, oh yeah. That's absolutely in, true. Yes, yes. At least yeah. they will, they will, I, I have not, I have not met any Hindu, Jain or even for that matter, Hindu or Buddhist who will say that if you're not a Jain or Hindu or Buddhist, you're going to hell. That's not going to happen. That's they're not saying. Nobody thinks that. And, right. and even if you did, you'd be reborn after that right. somewhere else. But if, if you went to hell, it wouldn't be because you weren't a Jain. It would be because you you know killed somebody or something. Yeah. You have to face your karma. You have to face your consequences. Yes. <clears throat> right, right. Uh, I guess let's come to now uh, another major topic that we uh, that I'm sure you have dealt with and I've dealt with in my teaching with the students here undergraduate or is the issue of Gandhi and influence of Jainism on Gandhi. What is your view or how have you dealt in your book uh, connecting Gandhi with Jainism? Yeah, I think Gandhi was heavily influenced by Jainism and uh, there's several um, you know, pieces of evidence for this. And one is his own words, right? He, mm. he, ta- he says, in, in fact, he talks about Anikantavad and Syadvad specifically. He said, I'm an Anikantavadi, I'm a Syadvadi. You know, he, he adopts that. Uh, he grew up in Gujarat, which is mm-hmm. a very heavy Jain population. Um, before he went to England to study law, mm-hmm. he took vows uh, before a Jain monk to abstain from any impure practice while he was abroad. And that, that, the Jain monk was his mother's guru, mm-hmm. though she was a Vaishnav Hindu. So he had yeah. this wonderful interplay of, of religions there. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, we also know that Gandhi's own guru, his his great exemplar in life was uh, Srimad Rajchandra, uh, Rajchand Bhai Mehta, and who was uh, a Jane Diamond merchant, but uh, though a householder, mm-hmm. as far as everyone says, all, everything we have written about him, totally detached mm-hmm. and uh, really embodied and, and taught for Gandhi you know, the, the core principles. And he really mm-hmm. learned the Hindu from, from uh, Rajchandra Mehta. So, mm-hmm. uh, and the, there's a whole you know, Jain school of thought based on Sriman Radchand writing. So I, we have every reason to, to say that Gandhi was very heavily influenced by the Jain tradition, though, to my knowledge, he never called himself a Jain. Yes, uh, he, that's good. That's good. And, uh, but uh, one of my favorite Gandhi quotes, and I, I delve into it in the book, mm. is where he actually talks about Anikantabad because mm-hmm. his, uh, he, had, he had several newspapers, and one of them was called Young India. And mm-hmm. he always wrote an editorial, and sometimes mm-hmm. he would talk in terms of Advaita Vedanta and universal oneness, and then he would also talk about God in a very theistic mm-hmm. way that Vaishnavs or Christians or Muslims could relate to. Mm-hmm. So someone wrote a letter to the editor and said, which is it? Do you believe in Advaita Vedanta or do you believe in you know, theism and theistic dualism? And he said, well, I'm, a, I'm an Anikantavari. I believe in both. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect answer. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So uh, he, he really, uh, and, and he did something that, uh, I, I mean, I call it practical Anikantavada, kind of like Swami Vivekananda's practical Vedanta. Mm-hmm. 
idea that wasn't just a theoretical or philosophical concept, but it shaped how he interacted with people. Hmm. So when he comments on what he means, he says, my unaccountable is not that of the philosophers. He said, it's, it's, it's practical. Uh, I have learned to see myself as others see me mm-hmm. and to be patient with those with whom I disagree because I have to see them from their perspective. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so for him, it was a very practical, again, a kind of intellectual ahimsa. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah I completely agree with that. All, all, all what you said, yeah, he did get inspiration from Leo Tolstoy and John Ruskin and Bhagavad Gita. <clears throat> but uh, Srimad Rachandra's influence, I think, was the, one of the heaviest on him, although he never called himself Jain, but he corresponded for right. six years while he was in South Africa and Shimadra Chandra was in Gujarat and they were writing letters to each other. Gandhi was asking questions and you almost say that he's my guru, but not quite officially, but he's almost like my right. guru and he's getting... Yeah, I think a guru in a sort of very spiritual and meaningful sense, but not a kind of formal sense. Like I don't right. think he gets kind of diksha or anything exactly. like that. Exactly. And in fact, he wasn't in a position to because he was a lay person, right? He right. wasn't a monk yeah so uh, but a guru in a kind of in a very, very yes teacher and inspirator teacher in that right. and he apparently visited some of the places where she was staying or living and 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 so he, yeah he definitely was very heavily influenced but of course he also yeah. called Bhagavad Gita as his mother John Ruskin oh, yeah. calls her and and even S.D. Thoreau I think he took some ideas from he took ideas from all over the place he so, loved the Sermon on the Mount. He said that was everything. Every all the scriptures of the world disappeared, and only the Sermon on the Mount was left. That would be enough. So, <laughs> that be enough. Right, right. And then Gandhi's influence on Dr. King and Nelson Mandela. So, can we say that this thread is running from Mahavir to Shemad Rachandra to Gandhi to Dr. King and to Nelson Mandela, and, and so so it sort of remains relevant. I think, Samas, right? What do you I think? think you can. I think you can say that. It's, is there, there's a, another book I've recently written on Hinduism in America, which uh, oh, yes, is yes. complementary in many ways to your Dharma in America that is a bookshelf there behind. And uh, yes. one of the threads of, if, if we brought it beyond Hinduism to say, you know, Indian spiritual thought, philosophy, culture in America, mm-hmm. there's definitely a Jain thread there. Oh. And it's this, it's what you're talking about, right? It's this, right. it's this, it, of nonviolence, not just peace, but nonviolence, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a great book. It was one that I uh, I used a lot, uh, cited a lot in my in my work on Hinduism in America, by Paul Oliver. It's called Hinduism in the 1960s, oh. and uh, the counterculture and the whole oh. you know, the hippie the peace movement. And he mentions Jainism as oh. as okay. an influence, and it's just like you said, via Gandhi. Oh. You know, in a very quiet subterranean way, you have actually oh. Jain. Finding its way into the life oh. and speech work of Martin King, Nelson Mandela, in very intangible ways, but still, yes, yes, things are- And that uh, you know, vegetarianism, of course, that's part of Hinduism as well, but it's so emphasized by the Jains, exactly. right? So these are all things that became more popular and important in, in starting in the 1960s in the U.S. Hmm. And they have, uh, you know, Jainism is part of that. Um, right, right. Theology, I would say. Great. I think we covered a lot of interesting topics. I think anything you would like to add that we that I didn't ask so far. Anything you would like to add? I guess one thing I know. Well, I know it's very dear to your heart. uh, Oh, and I said a little bit about it in my book, but with Jainism and ecology and the environment. I I think that's uh, yeah. In your Dharma and Ecology book, is there behind you too? (laughs) 
Uh, this is, uh, along with Anikantava, this is another big part, as you've said, the sort of public face of Jainism, that this is a very conscious tradition. And there too, you know, scholars like uh, John Court and Paul Dundas have pointed out, you know, on, on a, in a critical vein, say, yes. the ancient Jains weren't environmentalists in the modern sense. They were interested in moksha, right? They weren't interested in saving the earth. They were interested in getting away from it, right? Um, but the effect of their practice and uh, their impact on the environment or lack of impact on the environment mm. is exactly what we need right now. Mm. And uh, I wrote an article on this way like early in my career. Uh, it's mm. called The Paradoxes of Radical Asceticism. And mm. the paradox of Jain ascetic practice is that in the process of seeking to escape from the world and become free from the world, they have shown the way to save the world. Mm. That by not consuming more than mm. one meat, by reducing mm. our what we now call our carbon footprint, uh, we're actually doing good. And uh, so I think that that's another piece yes. I'd want to mention right. the Jain tradition. Keeping really the carbon important. footprint low and not interfering with nature's its own course. Let the nature take its own course. Let the animals take their own course. Insects, do not touch, do not kill, do not harm, stay away. Exactly. You do your you follow your path, let them follow their paths, right? Exactly. Yes. And, I, and, and if I could, just one last thing. Yeah, sure, this, sure. Is, this is how I end the book, actually. Yeah. I'm giving away the, maybe, <laughs> maybe that's a spoiler alert, right? But I say this to my students in my classes, is most Westerners will not want to become Jain, right? Oh. This is the whole consumer lifestyle yeah. of the West, mm -hmm. at odds with this. Mm. But if everyone became just a little more Jain, <laughs> It'd be best. a huge, <laughs> giant impact. Uh, you know, okay, you're not going to become a vegetarian. Be a vegetarian one day a week. Little bit, yeah. yeah. Little bit faster. Measure. Little bit vegetarianism. Less meat consumption. A bit yeah. more conscious. Less, one less shirt, maybe. One more year with your old car. <laughs> one more year with your old furniture. <laughs> Right, something exactly. like that. Yes, yes. Wonderful. Thank you, thank you. Yes. You know, don't put the lights on if you're not in the room. Yes, just, all exactly. these. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Because lights, happen. light also, electricity also is part of fire, and fire has soul. Fire-bodied beings have souls. So do not, exactly. you know, little less wastage of water, little less wastage of energy, little less wastage of earth and air and and all of that. Yes. Good. And all gens have to remember that also. You know, all gens are not perfect beings. Oh, and, that's right. Know, everybody has to implement these great and this is what this is what professor jaini wanted to uh, make sure i understood he attended a talk that i gave on anikantavada you know how it could be used for intellectual hinsa and so on and uh i i, I mentioned it in my talk but i think he was very concerned that i not romanticize jen oh. pieces just want you to know that Jains are and he said this as a jane he said you know we're as terrible as everyone else so, <laughs> yes I appreciate we all have to implement a bit yeah. more of these ideas, these great teachings to save our precious world. Yes, yes. Wonderful. We all need better. Yeah. Yes. Anything else you would like to add? Or I think I, we covered well, a lot of ground and... Uh, thank you for inviting uh, Yes. And I welcome and invite everybody, whoever is listening or will listen to, you know, get into, you know, wet your feet by Professor Long's book and then you can, you're ready for next venture into diving into Jainism. But his book is a great entry or great gateway, great gateway to the world of Jainism in a very, very, you know, he's holding your hands and taking to the world of Jainism. And so that's way, that's the way I see his book, which is great help to that's understand very Jainism. Kind of, very kind sir. of you to.
Thank you. Thank you. Long. We'll continue these kind of conversations. Thank you. Thank you. Nice meeting. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye.